Yeah, well, that wasn't over the weekend, though, was it? So who rethought? What did you go, what would your... If you put a really high number, like 100, and everyone else would have been calculating for a really small number, you could have skewed it way up. Yeah. But you probably wouldn't have won, because someone probably would have put like 50. You couldn't skew it. There, there are 26 other people. Yeah. So you could skew it up by 127th of the final average, which would mean that at most, if everyone else put zero and you put 100, you could get it up to three, maybe four. Um, but that, well, everyone put one. One is the lowest you could put. You, and if everyone except you put one, so there were 26 ones and one 100, you could skew it up to, let's say, round up to five. But that's the best you could do. Um, anyone else rethink their number? All right, just say what, you, what did you have? Do you remember? I have the answer right here. This is the dollar winner. I think I... If you, just say you don't remember if you don't remember. I don't remember. Okay, I remember. What did you have? I didn't care, so I put 50. You didn't care. Okay, that was mean of you, yeah? I cared and I put 50. <laughs> All right. I cared more. Yeah? Yeah. Seven. Seven? Just seven. Plain old seven. Okay. I think 31. 31? I think I put 73.33 bar. I don't think you did. No, maybe you did. I did. I know there was a 0.33. There was 70.333, but I don't think it was 73.33. There was, okay. It was something in the middle of three, and then went 0.333 yeah. with a bar. With a bar, yeah. I put 1.5. So we have, we have quite a little um, distribution here. Yeah. I put 49. 49? I think I put like 17 or something. Okay. Uh huh. I don't think so. I think he did 18. Yeah. Do you remember? I there were no 19s because I have this thing for primes. Um, yeah. I think he put 18. I see. Yeah. You didn't do it. You yeah. 50. Yeah. Four? I guess it's 13 or 15. Okay. George? 35, but I know it's too high. <laughs> well, now you know it's too high, right? <laughs> Listening to everyone else. Yeah. 45? Somewhere? I forget. Somewhere in the teens. Somewhere in the teens. Okay. I'm going to put eight. Eight. I think it's 14. I don't think so. No. I don't. I think you had a higher, much higher number. Yeah, I think you had forty-nine. Yeah, and you'd seen this before. Yeah. Forty-two. Huh? Someone did do twenty-three, but the right one. Maybe that person's cutting. In which case, yay! You all get to give me a dollar. No? I mean, what were the odds? Isn't that fair? the right answer. It's the closest. What was the number? The, so the closest was 24.5. And no the. One sorry? No one said that. No. So whoever put 24.5 isn't here today, which is nice for me, because <laughs> I'm going to spend that dollar on some gum. Um, Do you know what the average was? Yes, I'm going to tell you in a minute. Awesome. The average. 
Oh, that's not where I put it. Um, I'll have to redo the calculation. Uh, the, t the sum was 775.6 divided by 27. So anyone have a calculator? Or I'll just do it. Um, it was 28-something. Seven. Oh, shit. Damn it. Seven. It was on the calculator. 775.6 divided by 27 equals 28.725. So 28.7 would have been a bonus of a dollar even. I'm that nice. Um, but yeah, 28.7. So what was your thinking? People who put high numbers. I know you're thinking you didn't care. Um, people who put over 50 or over, what was your thinking? It was money, so you thought, right? I wanted to leave class. <laughs> you wanted to leave class and it was easier to write 50 because you wouldn't have to think about it? <laughs> there is no way to logically work it out in the time that I have left. Okay. Um, yeah. I thought people, well, I was thinking, you know, people are going to choose a number that's 70% of the average that they expect. And um, if you're reasoning that everyone else is also reasoning that way, then presumably you're going to take 70% of 70%. But then you have to think the other person. Which is why some people put 49, right? Because it was 70% of 70%, you were sort of thinking. Kind of, yeah. But then I thought people would also do the meta thought of 70% of 70% of 70% and continue that down. <laughs> well, that's why there's a lower bound of 1. I expected most people to put 1, so I put 1.5 1. Uh, to account for maybe a few people not taking 1. I see. So that way, that way. But, yeah, apparently people didn't do that. Kind of like auction sniper on eBay. Um, yeah. Okay, what if I were to ask you to put down the average, whoever came closest to the average of what everyone put down, what would you put down between 1 and 100? Or let's say between 0 and 100, make it easier. So whoever comes closest to the average of what everyone puts down would get a dollar. Hell, no, make it real money. A dollar fifty. <laughs> the original was 70% of the average of what everyone put down. Wait, are we doing that knowing that they thought it was 70% when they put those numbers down? Yeah. Yeah. I said 70%, right? To, I said it four times. We can go to the tapes, actually. 70% um, of the average of what everyone else puts down. So you have to figure out the average of what you imagine other people will put down. All right, let's do the easier version. The average of what everyone else puts down, what would you put down? You put to, because you think people would err on the side of littleness? Well, in a different case. Say it was the average of spinning um, a needle between 0 and 100, you know, like on, um, on um, Wheel of Fortune, except the, it was 0 to 100 and you spun it a hundred times, and the average number that came up would be what? The average of all the numbers that came up. Each zero through a through hundred have, all have equal likelihood. Yeah, it'd be 50, roughly. 
But 100 was the highest you could do. No, if, if there's no upper bound, then you, can, then you can cheat, which is interesting. But there is an upper bound, so you can't cheat by yourself. Um, so if it was just random numbers between 1 and 100, the average would be 50. Or between 0 and 99, the average would be 50. Um, but since you were supposed to take 70% of what everyone else was putting down, your first thought might be they're all going to put down... Well, who put 35? Those of you who, several people put 35. That was, a, um, that was one of the modes in the curve. So several of you put 35. The, raise your hand if you put 35. What was your thinking? George, what was your thinking? Well, 35 is half of 70, right? So if you're supposed to put down 70% of the average that everyone else puts down, instead of saying, if you're supposed to put down exactly half of, um, if you're supposed to put down the average <coughs> of what everyone else puts down, you'll hit right in the middle, and you'll say 50. But since you're supposed to put down 70% of what everyone else puts down, you will perhaps assume that they'll put 50, and so you'll do 70% of 50, which is 35. Right? Does that sound like what you were thinking? Did I, did I read your mind? Okay. Um, Joy, what did you put? 35. Was that your thinking? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And what was your thinking? Do you remember? Sorry. Like okay, but it would it would be seventy if everyone else put a hundred. Yeah, but that's. So you'd have to think people were really really stupid if they were supposed to put down seventy percent of what everyone else put down, of the average of what everyone else put down. So 100 couldn't possibly be right, because then that's 100% that's of the highest possible number that everyone else could put down. But it couldn't be right for anyone else either, because the highest number that anyone would put down, no one did put down over 50, I don't think. Um, the highest number anyone would put down would be 70, mm -hmm. since it's 70%. So the highest number anyone would put down would be 70. So now you want to figure out what the average is going to be, this is how people will think it through, what the average is going to be if the highest number anyone will put down is 70, then it's going to be the average between 1 and 70, so you may say 35. But why is 35 not the winning number? Yeah, because you do the same thing again. That is, you say, well, everyone knows the highest number that anyone would put down is 70, but everybody knows that. So no one's going to put down 70. The highest they would put down is actually what? No, 70% of 70. 49. 49 would be the highest number people would put down. Now, obviously, that turns out to be false um, since we did have three or four 50s. But that would be the third step. So the first thing you would think is the highest number anyone could put down is 100. So the highest possible right answer is 70. Okay, and if you were playing with complete half-witted three-year-old tamarins, that might be the right answer, 70. Because you would say, oh, tamarins, they're half-witted, they're only three, and they're famous for their greed and for their enjoyment of high numbers. So they might all put down 100, so I'm going to put down 70, and I will win the $1 worth of bananas. Right? 
But if you think immediately about the person you're playing with, you're going to think, yeah, but any person smarter than a half-witted three-year-old tamarind is going to realize that 70 is the highest possible number it could be. So if they were playing with full-witted three-year-old tamarinds or half-witted three-year-old humans, they would do 70% of 70, which is 49. But then you would think, oh, but no, if that really is the highest number that it could possibly be is 49, most people will see that, so I'm going to do 70% of 49, which is going to be about 35. That might be another way to get to 35 or a little bit less than 35. I think someone put 34.2. Um, anyone recall that? Yeah. So you might have been thinking that way? Yeah, yeah. So is 70% of 70% of 70% of 100. Um, okay. And then, though, you might think, well, but everyone is going to figure out 34.2, so it's got to be 21, roughly, or 22, but everyone's going to figure out 22, so really it has to be a little bit closer to 14, except everyone is going to figure out 14, so really it has to be a little bit closer to 11, or 10, 10, I guess, but everyone's going to figure out 10, so it's more like 7, but everyone's going to figure out 7. So it's more like five. But everyone will figure out five, won't they? I guess not, because you didn't. So partly, it's, this is a game like Family Feud. Do you know that TV show? Where it's not, OK, well, the game is not that you're trying to figure out what a perfect reasoner would come with. That is, what a computer would come up with. But you're trying to figure out what other people would come up with. So what Kenny did was he thought, OK, most people are going to work out that it should go to the lower bound, which is 1. Does everyone see why it should go to the lower bound? That if you're thinking that everyone else is thinking the way you are, then they're going to keep doing 70% of 70% of 70% of 70% of 70%, etc. Right? So eventually, the lowest number you can go to is 1, so that's what it has to be. But then what Kenny thought was, but if one or two people do a higher number than 1, it'll only take one or two out of the other 26 people in the room to do a higher number than 1. And if one or two people do a higher number than 1, then 1 won't be the answer. It'll be a little bit above 1. So let's say that 25 people do 1. And one person does 27. Then the average is going to be what? I, the numbers are easy. I gave them to you because they're easy. 25 plus 27. 25 plus 27 is, I'm thinking of weeks in the year and cards and 52. And there are 26 people who've written down numbers. 25 have written 1, and 1 has written 27. So 26 people have written numbers. What's the average number they've written down then? Two. Two. Good. <laughs> See, I told you this is easy. So I was expecting somebody, I guess, then, I, and I didn't think this fully through. Um, if you knew people's majors, well, you might have thought it through more. To your credit. That's, that's quite possible. <laughs> OK, so. Well, yeah. I was expecting someone to do, like, 13 or so. Yeah. If 
Yeah, okay. Well, so you expected everyone to do one and then for there to be 113. Right, which was somewhat of a uh, silly estimation um, in hindsight. In hindsight. Well, everything is silly in hindsight. Um, okay, did people get what's going on, how this works? No? Is it? But yeah, it's like that. that. Well, it has to do, see, there are two things that are being combined here. And one is probability. Um, that is to say, the way you can be misled by probability, but the law of averages um, matters here. So if I ask you, what's the average card that you would pick out of a deck? Let's say um, that an ace is worth um, th 14, right? Um, so the average card that you would pick out of a deck is then what? What's the value of an average card? Seven. Yeah. Um, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, so eight. Um, so the average value of a card is eight. So if you pick a card randomly, you can expect that half the cards you get will be um, below eight and half will be above, or that if you get a card that's not an eight, it's got a 50-50 chance of being below or above eight. Okay, does everyone see that? No? Um, if you... Okay, does everyone get it? You're concussed, so the fact that you get it might be a problem. Um, does everyone get it? It's illustrating something like the interaction of probability with strategy. So, so, the so probabilities, this is what you wrote about for your Pascal paper. Probabilities and strategy go together because you strategize based on probability. If you're following the election, you know that's what's going on. That is that the probability um, as to who's going to win Ohio is going to have a huge effect on who wins the presidency. Um, so if one candidate has a 70% probability of winning Ohio, um, that candidate has a greater chance of winning the presidency. So the other candidate is going to work really hard to take Ohio away, to win Ohio himself. So you look at probabilities. The reason that in Massachusetts there are very few presidential ads and all the ones we see are really for the New Hampshire market is because the probability that Massachusetts will vote for Romney is close to zero. So there's no point in Romney as a strategist putting money into ads in Massachusetts because he's not going to win Massachusetts. However, Scott Brown has a huge chance of winning Massachusetts. No, but it's just he's, he's liked and Romney isn't. So Scott Brown has a huge chance of, or Elizabeth Warren isn't liked, and Obama is. Um, Scott Brown has a huge chance of winning Massachusetts, which is why there's so many Brown and Warren ads, um, and why so much non-Massachusetts money is going to support either Brown or Warren. Yeah? Has Romney considered that the reason he has zero chance of winning Massachusetts is because he is not advertising here? Well, yeah, but the point is bang for the buck. No, this is, this is answering Caro's question. That is, you have to, the intersection or the interaction between game theory and probability is you have to decide whether it's worth your while making a bet 
on a low probability situation, even if making the bet might increase the probability that you would win. So that's the thing that, that Jared and Sam were talking about, which is that what you could say is, look, I'm going to bet 100, hoping that the, that skews the numbers up, and that people who put 1 will say, boy, was I wrong. But the problem is your bet of 100 can only pull the numbers up by 4. So you've gone up by 99, but you've pulled the numbers up only by 4. So the cost of betting 100 in terms of accuracy of a bet is much higher than the change in probability that the number will be a high number. The change in probability that the number will be a high number if one person bets 100 is, is significant but low. But the cost is that you've made an absurd bet that you have no chance of winning, or almost no chance of winning, close to zero chance of winning. So what you have to do, what we always have to do, is weigh probabilities against um, desired outcomes and against psychological expectations. Let, let me give you another example, since I've actually been thinking about this. Um, without telling me who you want to win, how many people, and I'm going to assume, can I assume that you all have a desire for who will be president? Is there anyone who just couldn't care less? Greg? Are you just like 50 for president? <laughs> the, the, the super independent candidate. Schrodinger for president. Yeah, Schrodinger for president. So does everyone desire one or the other of the two major candidates to win? Or prefer that one or the other of the two major candidates not be the one of those two who wins? Does everyone have such a desire? Is there anyone who doesn't? I will close my eyes and you can just say yes, and I won't know who you are. Anyone who doesn't? Okay. Um, how many of you think the candidate that you want to win will win? So let's count. One, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. And there goes my theory. Okay. Um, and how many of you think the other candidate will win? Really? And what about the rest of you? <coughs> Not everyone had that. Some of you are just fence-setting. I, I was almost going to be, I just don't think either. Yeah, but one of them's going to win. <laughs> yes. That's like that logic. Okay, yeah. The thing is, I think, uh, well, I was just thinking about this for, especially for politics, um, depending on where you are, and who you're kind of surrounded by, you can be certain that one person or the other one is going to win. Yeah, but that's not actually true. How many of you are anxious about the election? And the rest of you are just like, meh? Or you're just, I'm going to be so happy in a week because I know what will happen? How many of you are, I'm going to be so happy in a week because I know what will happen already? Okay. <laughs> How many of you have... I don't think Romney has a chance. Sorry? I just really don't think Romney has a chance. I believe in American values. Okay, okay. Here's, here's, what, here's why I'm asking. Um, there is a Gallup poll. So all the, po the polls are all over the place. 
and people cherry pick polls. They're anxious. They read polls. They cherry pick polls. The polls that show their candidate winning get, um, allows them to relax a little bit. Then the polls that show their candidate being creamed makes them all upset, and they call their friends, and they go to support groups, and all sorts of things like that. And then there's this kind of meta cherry picking, which is what I do, which is I go to 538.com. Do people know about that? So 538.com is an extremely good meta-analysis of polls by a probability theorist. Um, there's another one, which is um, election.princeton.com. There's Votomatic. And what these basically do is they aggregate polls, including um, weighing the polls based on their previous performances um, in other elections, whether they trend Democratic, whether they trend Republican, how, how um, recent they are, whether cell phones have been called, and so on. And so these poll aggregators have different formulae for figuring out which polls are more reliable than which other polls, and they then give percentage odds for different candidates winning. And, and then there's also in-trade. Do people know about in-trade? So Intrade is a prediction market, Intrade.com, where if you're not in the U.S., because it's illegal in the U.S., um, you can buy or sell stock in candidates. That is, you can bet on one candidate winning or the other candidate losing um, against other people who will bet the other way. So right now, shares of Obama go for about um, 65 cents per share and shares of Romney go for about 35 cents per share. So if you think that Romney has a greater than 35% chance of winning, you should buy Romney. If you think um, Obama has a greater than 65% chance of winning, you should buy Obama. And so in-trade is crowdsourcing, and the idea is that markets do better than individuals at pricing, um, at, at pricing values. So does this make sense to people? Yes. Um, in the Bush administration, Admiral Poindexter tried to set up, do you know about this? A terrorist attack prediction market where people would buy and sell shares for where the next major terrorist attack would be. Um, this turns out to be really stupid. Um, first of all, it's really stupid because it's misunderstanding how markets work with very bad information. It's also really stupid because... Um, terrorists can read the markets also, and they have inside information that they can capitalize on. So it's incredibly stupid. But it is something that um, was supposed to rely on the magic of the marketplace. Yeah? Um, with the intraday thing, um, why is it that they add up to a dollar? Um, is that fixed or something? It's just, yeah, it's just a way of... Um, one of them is that yeah, no, they, they're, they're, they're <laughs> fractional possibilities that were higher a few months ago that someone else would win, that Johnson would win, um, that the Libertarian would win, that the um, Constitution Party candidate would win, that Ralph Nader would get into it and win. Um, and you could buy those very long shots for a penny apiece or less than a penny apiece. But, but I mean, like, why is it that, why is it that it's fixed at a... Um... Because, it's, it, it's, because then you can buy numbers of shares. So it's just a way, it's like poker chips. How many dollars worth of Obama chips do you want? Right. Obama chips are right now discounted at 65 cents each. Um, how many dollars? only a 65% chance of a payoff. Right. I see. Yeah. So you buy a share for a dollar and, or rather you buy, no, you buy, you buy a share for 65 cents and you win a dollar. And you win a dollar because 
if you, if it were a one hundred percent chance and you bought it for a dollar, then you would get a dollar back. Right. Okay. So if you think the odds that someone is is going to win are sixty five sixty five percent, you buy a share worth a dollar if you win for sixty five cents. And that's called, I mean, you guys are young for this, but that's called gambling. <laughs> uh, and it's what Pascal was also talking about. Jerry? But isn't it kind of stupid because this, this idea, this market uh, measurement of the election is subject to the same problems we had that caused the recession? Because mass speculation or market-like manipulation can totally skew the market, which then affects the market and compounds and ruins, like, how do you, is it just faith in that, the invisible hand that it will cause it to... Well, the idea is that, is that um, there, the idea is faith in the invisible hand. Um, and in trade also picked, I think it was in 2008, it picked 49, I think if, if I'm remembering right, it out, it did, outdid any pollster and picked 49 out of 50 states right, or maybe it was all 50 states right. Um, but in trade did better than any expert in um, the results that, that it predicted. Yeah. So maybe mass speculation and market manipulation actually occur in the election as well. Well, it turns, it looks like because everyone, people weren't really looking on in trade and it was an honest um, market four years ago or eight years ago, but now everyone knows about it. So it looks like they're actually. Um, people speculate, not speculating, people trying to manipulate the market in order to get good press for their candidate um, by going, by buying what are probably, what they, th buying tickets they think are not winning tickets, but that will change the odds, which will then get reported in the press, which may then change the odds, which is what we're doing here with the 70% thing. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, hmm. how Okay, so. I'm just wondering how is this accurate because, like, it takes only a portion. Well, the idea is that, like, okay, so all of you are pretty sure your candidate's going to win, which I want to tell you why that totally screws up my theory, but why I'm glad about it. Um, but the idea is basically if everyone in the country is betting on in trade at more or less um, equal percentages, um, you know, and by more or less same order of magnitude. Obviously, uh, people in Nevada, which is a gambling hub, are probably betting more percentage, more of a percentage of Nevada residents are betting on in trade than North Dakota <laughs> residents, where where gambling would be frowned upon. Um, but let's just say it's more or less the same order of magnitude. Um, then what happens is people have an intuition from their own communities as to who's going to win. Um, and it's really hard to put that aside. That is, if everyone you know is voting for candidate A and everyone you know is reassuring each other that candidate A really has a good chance because it's just so obvious that candidate B is a socialist and a liar, um, then 
you're going to feel like, okay, I'm willing to bet on candidate A because um, I think that he has a good chance. Um, and it's not that big a bet. I'll bet a couple of bucks, and, if I'm, and um, I'll put my money where my mouth is. So what you're doing in Intrade is getting a representation of what people believe will happen. The same is supposed to be true. This is the invisible hand theory that Jared was talking about. The same is supposed to be true for any efficient market, that it prices things correctly. Um, you can make this clear if you just think about um, you know, supply and demand or the price of bread, let's say, that um, people sell for the most they can get and people pay the most they can pay and if you try to sell for more than people are willing to pay, you don't, get, you don't sell your bread and you come out behind. If, you, um, are if you're not willing to pay what people are asking, you, also, you don't get bread and you also come out behind. Um, so that markets are really good at finding an equilibrium between what people are willing to buy, prices that people are willing to buy and prices that people, people are willing to pay. And that equilibrium is the correct price for a loaf of bread. There's no other way of defining what the correct price is than an equilibrium between what people are willing to pay and what people are willing to, um, to sell for. And so the idea is that markets in general can price things correctly by through two things. There's, a, there's this um, book which um, spells this out called The Wisdom of Crowds um, by Jamie Sirwecki, I think you pronounce his name. Um, but there's a famous, if any of you go to business school, there's a famous thing that they do at Harvard Business School and maybe at others, which is that um, on the first day of class, the professor brings in a gigantic jar of jelly beans. Um, and asks people to write down how many jelly beans there are in the jar. And whoever gets, clo gets it closest gets a serious amount of money. Um, so, so people don't just put down 50 because they don't care. They're in business school. They like money. Um, so whoever gets, gets the number closest will get a serious amount of money. So people's guesses are all over the place. You know, some people say 10,000 jelly beans and some people say 1,400 jelly beans. So they're an order of magnitude different. Um, we're just not used to counting jelly beans in a big jar. There it is up there. And then there are 200 people in this class. The professor averages the guesses. And the average is almost always extremely close to the right answer. Closer, always closer than any guess that anyone made. So what happens is the bad guesses cancel each other out. Some people guess too high, some people guess too low, and they cancel each other out. And those which are more accurate, um, or there's convergence on accuracy. So if you average all the guesses, you get a much more accurate number than the guess that anyone, no matter how expert they are at jelly bean counting, can do in the same situation. And so that idea is called, that's where crowdsourcing comes from um, on the internet or it's one version of crowdsourcing, where you just get a lot of different estimations. And if you average those estimations, you actually get very, very great accuracy. Um, so that's how prediction markets work. But then the thing is, as soon as prediction markets are seen to work, um, they start being manipulated and they stop working. 
Um, and it looks like that happened on Intrade a couple of weeks ago, that too many people were saying, oh, Intrade is showing Obama doing really well, despite Romney's bounce. Obama seems to be doing really, really well. And then suddenly one person seems to have um, bought a whole lot of Romney stock on Intrade, um, enough to change the odds significantly by about 10%. Um, and that 10% change, suddenly the headlines were saying, Intrade no longer thinks Obama's going to win. Um, but it may be the case that, that the person or persons who bought, who bought all the Romney were buying those headlines intentionally. Um, so that, you asked the question, that's the interaction, intersection between willingness to bet and odds about which you're willing to bet. And those odds, however, and this is what's interesting about it in what you guys just did with the 70% of what everyone else would, would put down, is that what you're trying to do is figure out what other people are going to think the odds are. So there are odds that you're trying to work out, but you're also trying to work out what the odds that other people are going to try to work out. And you know that they're trying to work out the odds that you're trying to work out. So does that make sense to people? Um, okay. Later we're going to read a, um, this is when we talk about busy beaver numbers. We're going to read a paper um, in which two very, very stupid people, it begins with a joke, which is that two very, very stupid inbred European aristocrats um, have a contest, who can think of the bigger number? Um, so they sit down. I'll just tell you the joke. You'll read it again, but I'll tell you the joke. So they sit down, a count and, um, and a marquee, they sit down, and they say, let's have a contest. Who can think of the bigger number? So the count says, how long do we have to think about the number? And the marquee says, we'll say 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, think of the biggest number you can, and in 10 minutes, we'll both write down our numbers, and whoever thinks of the bigger number wins. So the 10 minutes are up, and they both write down their numbers. And the count says to the marquee, OK, that was hard. Remember, these are very stupid people. What number did you write down? And the marquee shows his number, 73. <laughs> and the count looks at him and shakes his head and says, you win. <laughs> um, <laughs> OK. So the question is, if there's a contest, whoever writes down the biggest number wins. The point is, how could you even think you could win that contest? What number would you write down? Whatever number you write down, it's just you can immediately think of a bigger one. It's impossible to think that you can think of a bigger number than other people. Um, so in this case, we're doing something. It's a different kind of contest contest. It's sometimes called, in economics, it's called a Keynesian beauty contest. And this goes to your question about speculation. So um, do people know who John Maynard Keynes is? John Maynard Keynes? Um, so he writes about um, something that amazed him. This was actually a version of Family Feud, um, but more so. Something that amazed him in a British newspaper in the 1930s which was the newspaper every day would have a contest, or every week would have a contest. And the contest is they would show five photographs of women. And it was a beauty contest. The question was, who was the most beautiful of these women? But that wasn't the question, because how could you answer that? Um, 
it, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So the actual question was, who will our readers in this contest say is the most beautiful of these women? That is, who will get the most votes? And the person who um, has, um, for all the correct answers, um, will pick out one, or maybe the person who gets correct answers for the whole year, whatever. I don't remember how you win. But the point was that you were supposed to pick not the person you thought was most beautiful, but the person you thought everyone else would, the most people would pick out of those five. So if you go to movies and if you have arguments with your friends about whether some movie star or other is good looking or not, you know that no one's taste is average, right? You know that you find people good looking that other people don't and you find people um, not good looking that everyone else is swooning over, right? You've all had that experience? Sorry? Yeah. So if you enter a Keynesian beauty contest and you see those five photographs, what you have to decide is not who you think is most beautiful, but what? Who you think other people are going to think is most beautiful. Yeah, or who fits most societal constructs of beauty. Um, but if you do that, you're forgetting that everyone else is also doing that. That is that no one is saying is going to put who they think is most beautiful. They're going to put who they think other people are going to think is most beautiful. Except that they're going to remember that no one is doing that. That everyone is realizing that everyone else is realizing that no one is putting who they think is most beautiful. But that everyone is putting down what they think other people will put down based on what they think other people will put down, based on what they think other people will put down, based on what they think other people will put down, based on, I'm just seeing how many minutes of class we have left, what they think other people will put down, based on what they think other people will put down, to quote Nabokov and Lolita, printer fill up the page. So you're not putting down a true answer. You're putting down your belief about what other people will do based on their belief about what you will do based on your belief about what they will do, et cetera. It's a version of rock, paper, scissors. Yeah? But they're not putting what, you think, what they think you will do. They're putting what they think you will do and the others. Yeah. So I think in the end, you really just have some sort of mind concept that people have a mind concept of others as a whole. Well, so, but you'd notice that you'd need two concepts simultaneously. You'd need to believe that there is, that there are well-defined social canons of beauty, which is what Amanda is both saying and, and I take it complaining about. No, um, I'm happy that you quoted Bobita. Okay. <laughs> it's my favorite book. It's my a good book. Was on it. Really? <laughs> a friend of mine, um, during the last World Series, her Facebook update was um, she really liked the announcers. And um, who was it? One of the pitchers, one of the announcers said, um, he's having a postseason. Um, and that reminded her of a line in Lolita where Lolita writes a letter from camp which says, dear hum and mum, I'm having a time. So um, yeah, you're having a time too. Um, 
So one thing you could so but but to go back to what you're saying, what you could say is, look, there are there are standard um, um, standardized ideas of what good, being good looking is in our culture. Our culture has um, certain standards, culturally constructed standards of what being good looking is, and I can count on most people um, knowing what those standards are, and even. And therefore, I can count on most of them, even though I don't find um, this array of people good-looking, um, or th I, this isn't my spectrum of who's good-looking. I can I know that with our stupid society, this is these are the conventional good looks. Um, and if you then know what you if you think you know what conventional good looks are, even if they're not appealing to you, you could still answer the question, right? You might have wanted, um, I don't know, um, John Anderson to win in 1980 um, or Ross Perot to win in 1992, um, but you would also have known that most likely Anderson and Perot were not going to win, that it was going to be Reagan or Mondale in 1980 or that it was going to be um, Bush or Clinton in 1992. Um, so you would say, you know, people are idiots, they're going to vote for a major party candidate, that really sucks, but I know it's going to happen. Um, and so my bet is, even though I want Anderson to win, my bet is that Carter will win. Sorry, I said Mondale, but I meant Carter. My bet is that Carter will win. Um, so that would be conventional wisdom. But in this case, people are not betting on who's going to win an independent contest, but they're betting on what people are going to bet on. And that's the crucial thing, is that you're betting on what people are going to bet on. And they're betting, they're making their bets because they're also betting on what people are going to bet on. So everyone is betting on what people are going to bet on. And that skews and affects the bets. Now, if you say, but everyone is nevertheless going to be guided by conventional good looks, then you might yourself be guided by conventional good looks because you'll say that's what people are going to do. Faute de mieux, as they say, with nothing better to do. But you have to assume that other people are going to assume that everyone is going to be guided by conventional good looks. In other words, it may be the case that the conventional good looks do win, but not because anyone said, oh, I find that person good looking, but rather because everyone said, oh, I bet everyone else will find that person good looking because they'll be guided by conventional good looks. So it may be that conventional good looks wins not because anyone bet on someone simply because they found them good looking, but because everyone bet on the assumption that everyone else would find them good-looking. Yeah? Um, I remember reading, there's a really fascinating blog that has since shut down, but um, is still up there, um, that was made by the data people behind OkCupid. Mm -hmm. um, and they were analyzing, they had a lot of data about how people dated and how pe what people were attracted to. And so what they found was that the people that got the most requests for dates were not the people that people rated as that had the highest average attractiveness rating. Mm -hmm. They were the people that had the most controversial attractiveness rating. 
Uh -huh. It was to say that there were two peaks in their graph, people that thought they were very unattractive and people that thought they were very attractive, uh -huh. rather than the people that had a nice bell curve right. that was actually higher on average than those the controversial people. Yeah, that's not, that's not surprising to me, and, but what's interesting about it, or my analysis of that would be that the point is if everyone finds someone incredibly good looking, everyone thinks, you know, everyone finds someone incredibly attractive for whatever reasons, personality meaning a lot, of course. Um, if everyone finds someone attractive, everyone thinks they don't have a chance with that person. Whereas the controversial people um, will both seem like people who might um, be open-minded because so many people are repelled by them, um, but are attractive to you, so you would take your chance with them. Does that... Wow, my mind is blown. Don't you think that's true in real life? I think that's absolutely true. That jives with the I analysis that they presented on the blog. Sorry, what would... I said it just jives with the analysis that they presented on the blog. Yeah, so again, you're balancing your chances by an estimation of your estimation of what other people are estimating their chances as being. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of versions of this, but... Um, you have to just, you know, I mean, it's who wants to be a millionaire is the same thing, right? That is, you've won $100,000. Do you stay in and try an even harder question? Or do you just say, that good, that's good enough for me? Yeah. Um, you all know that Neil Akuna said, I can't get a date, but she's the hottest girl of the year. Is that true? Yeah, and that's kind of funny. I just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so... Prisoner's Dilemma. Well, actually, first I want to hear what you guys, um, everyone has, has, has anyone not handed their paper in? I do. Yeah, I mean, you're still working on yours? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, we'll put off Pascal a little bit longer, although I hope, how many people um, converted and are now desperately, sorry? To Jansenism. To Jansenism. No. I made a few new wagers, though. You did? On what? Life. New wagers. Once I couldn't even think of, but I gave. Okay. Um, let's talk about, did you guys read the Joyce? <laughs> what with your day off and everything? And the fact that it was on the syllabus? And the fact that it's a day later than you were supposed to read it? Two days later. Two days later? A class later? So has everyone finished it? Yeah. You ready for your Portrait of the Artist quiz? <laughs> I can't believe you're kidding. I don't think you are. He wasn't kidding with the I wasn't. But I don't know how this No, I won't give a quiz, but seriously, how many people have read it? <laughs> okay. Why is it really to infinity, though? I can't figure it out. Seriously? Really? And you read it? Yeah. What page are you on? The end. What? It was like, he went to a school, he did this, he was a prostitute, he did this, he got really religious. Yeah, why did he get really religious? Wait, why did he get really religious? Yeah, the what? The chapter long sermon. Yeah, what? The chapter long sermon. Yeah, he went to the retreat. He went to the retreat, good, in honor of Francis Xavier. And he heard Father Arnell preach a little sermon. Little. <laughs> little with respect to infinity. It was an infinitesimal percentage of infinity. So, in the course of our lives, that is not little. 
Okay, so what does he hear in the sermon? What is it that freaks him out about hell? Yeah. It's like infinitely infinite. It's really unpleasant. It's really unpleasant. It's unpleasant in ways that in our life we can't imagine happening simultaneously. It's like the one really, really good thing about it being too hot is that it's not too cold. Um, but in hell it's going to be both disgustingly too hot and um, just way too shiveringly cold all wow, at once. That's a, that's a weird sensation to wrap your around. Yeah. Well, like, I really touch something that's burning hot and it feels like it's cold. I really wonder, though, what Stephen Dedalus would say if he read uh, Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth. I, th I think he'd say more what Joyce says in Ulysses. But yeah, um, Twain is not a God lover, let's put it that way. Um, but then, and what, and, and what Father Arnell says is, you know, even if you couldn't scratch an itch for all eternity, that would be worse than any torture anyone has ever experienced on Earth. Um, now think how long eternity is. So that would be the relevance. So how long is eternity? Yeah, and um, why does it? Why does he go on so long? Why doesn't he just say eternity? You know, lasts forever. Because you know that. Yeah. You just don't feel it. Okay, so you know it, but you don't feel it. And yeah. Yeah, I guess just saying you're going to go to hell. Just the idea of passion is that one word of hell is too enormous that we don't feel anything. Yeah, um, it's just, okay, that would be bad. So you just file that under bad outcome. Um, but what it means for it to be bad, Luca, you put it in terms of what you don't, you don't feel what that means? Yeah. Yeah, so what it would mean for that to be bad is something that you don't have in mind. Um, and what Father Arnell's sermon does is to do what? Scare you. Yeah, by telling you just how long eternity is, or by failing to tell you how long eternity is, by saying that any attempt to give you any picture of how long eternity is fails. And by giving you a picture of that failure, even while saying that any attempt to give you a picture of that failure would fail even as a picture of the failure to tell you how long eternity is. So how many people were impressed by that sermon? I was. I was, I was, more, annoyed. I was more annoyed than anything. Why were you annoyed? Because it went on too long? Yeah. So you skimmed it. Yeah, yeah all right, see. Um, but if you'd heard it, which now you will. What? Yep. <laughs> I see what you need. Look, I may be saving you from this. That I'm going to read this aloud? He loves me. Well, that's because you're nice to him. You know, I bet if you were mean to him, 
he question you. So God kills, you know, takes away everything Joe Pods, kills his family. Why have you done this to me, God? See, I told I you just, so. I just want to know Christianity. that you loved me. In, in Christianity, Joe is upset. In Judaism, he says, why have you done this to me? What have I done to deserve this? Which is nothing other than just, God's really fickle. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's really self-centered. He's a lot of insecurities. You know, I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend who has a friend. This is true. My friend Nick can tell Yeah, I met a friend. Uh, my friend Nick, this is like friends, friends on LiveJournal. My friend Nick has a friend who Nick is very unshockable, but he was shocked by this. Um, he has a friend. Who is who just loves saying whenever anything good happens to him, he loves saying stuff like, "Nothing can hurt me now." Um, <laughs> so, would any of you be willing to say that, no matter how good what happened to you was? I, I would knock on wood after. Yeah. What? Really? I just like to point out what happened really, to that tech guy to in James Bond's movie Goldeneye. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, do, you, do people know who, who um, Robert Oppenheimer is? Yeah, he headed the Manhattan Project. He was a physicist, and he was then screwed by Edward Teller um, and lost his... He, he was anti-war and anti-nuclear weapon after essentially inventing the atomic bomb, and he lost his government security uh, clearance and um, went to the... and headed the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton and he had some friends over one night and uh, they noticed that he had a horseshoe on his barn and someone said I can't believe it you um, a scientist someone who is you know absolutely committed to a rational non-mystical explanation of the universe and to real discovery for how things um, work you have a good luck charm you don't really think that works do you and Hoffenheimer said, of course I don't think it works. Of course I don't believe it works. But I heard you don't have to believe. According to Pascal? According to Pascal, you do. But that would be the idea of superstition. You don't have to believe, but you're still superstitious. Um, so you guys are, and so nothing can happen to you, right? That's not superstition. That's a psychological. Yeah, superstition is psychological. No, but there's a, a different term for it where it's just... Uh, it's called Ben Yard Dispensed Elsewhere. Um, just, you know, you're, you don't believe in superstition necessarily, and there's no religious backing or actual yeah. belief, but for some reason you just feel it. Yeah. Um, and you don't say things like nothing can hurt me now because you feel like you're tempting fate. Um, except these guys. <laughs> there was an episode of Doctor Who where a character said, well, there's no turning back now. And the doctor said, oh, did you have to? You might as well have said nothing could possibly go wrong, or this is only the best Christmas orphans I've ever had. Right. <laughs> Okay, so um, the idea of hell when you are reminded of it, that's what Arnell is doing. Um, what he's saying is, and what Joyce, I mean, think about this from Joyce's point of view. Um, how many people like the book? Um, you like the essay? Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, Joy? Kind of. Uh, what didn't you like about it? I, I found I found like the, the style interesting, but I found that I could only take it in short bursts. Like because otherwise I, I mean 
at a certain point I would get like, at, like the first few pages I'd be like, this is really cool, and then I'd get like tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, what do you think the title means? Let's talk about the title for um, a couple of minutes. Is it, did you think about the title or was it sort of so familiar that it's like Reservoir Dogs? Um, a title that means itself. Do you know that about Reservoir Dogs? How many people have seen it? Um, how many people know a new Quentin Tarantino movie is about to come out? Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so Reservoir Dogs, if you've seen it, um, is notable for containing no reservoirs and no dogs. Um, and no mention of reservoirs and no mention of dogs. Um, and so if you go in to see Reservoir Dogs, one thing that tends to happen unless you've gone to a class like this and heard what I've just said and remember it, which what are the odds really, um, is that you go in and you think, oh, Reservoir Dogs, it's that famous movie, and by the time I see this movie, I will understand why it's called Reservoir Dogs. And then you come out and you say to yourself, I have just seen Reservoir Dogs. Um, and you forget that Reservoir Dogs hasn't explained its title to you, um, and that because it doesn't matter. Because Reservoir Dogs now means one thing in our culture. It means that movie by Quentin Tarantino. And once you've seen it, that's what it means. But if you slow down, Nellie, and think a little while about, well, why is it called Reservoir Dogs? If you go see it a second time to try and figure out why it's called Reservoir Dogs, you might have some, eh, they're kind of like junkyard dogs because they're so sadistic, maybe. I don't know. But it must be something like that or something I'm missing. So does anyone know why it's called Reservoir Dogs? So when Quentin Tarantino was working in a video shop, do you guys know what those are? Video stores? Um, like they used Netflix. to have kind of like Netflix except brick and mortar. Like you could like, go into... Like Redbox? Sort of, except there were people who worked there. I, it, it's weird. It was just real, real second millennium stuff we're Wait, talking so about here. Like if people worked outside of the internet... Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was it was like videos on tapes in Meat Space. Tape. Yeah, Crazy. I know. Crazy. I know. I know. Right. Um, so, so Quentin Tarantino learned a whole lot about movies working at a video store and worked at a video store because he really liked and knew a lot about movies. And um, in the eighties, there was a movie by Louis Malle about um, the German occupation of France. Anyone know what it's called? Uh, la, is that La Condition? No. Um, Au revoir les enfants. Um, goodbye children. Which was about some Jewish children at a school being protected by their Catholic teacher um, who was really good to them, but the um, authorities get wind that they're Jewish kids at this Catholic school. Um, and the movie is about that. And it's called Au revoir les enfants. And Tarantino could never remember the title. And so he said, yeah, people would come in. I couldn't remember the title. They couldn't remember the title. They'd come in and they'd say, do you have that movie? Oh, God, what's it called? Reservoir Dogs or something. Um, and so when he made his first movie, he decided that his mismemory and mishearing of Au revoir les enfants would be the title of his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. Whatever it was going to be about, that was going to be its title. So it got that title through essentially a garbling of a signal. It's almost something that could be in the Library of Babel. That is, Reservoir Dogs would be the it title. Yeah, well, it is, and that too. So is the transcript of this class, by the way. So, um, 
so what happens then is Reservoir Dogs becomes just the name of that movie, and that's how we think about it from then on. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man has a similar fate. That is, everyone's heard of it. It's been parodied. Dylan Thomas has a parody of it. Do people know? A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog. That's a real thigh slapper. Uh, as a young reservoir dog. Yes, everything comes together because dogs. Um, yeah. There's also a great song called Everything Reminds Me of My Dog. Um, so it's a novelty song, but a good one. Um, so Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, no one really thinks about the title. But think about it for a minute. What does the title mean? Yeah. Okay, so a portrait of the artist as a young man, meaning um, a young man who is in the process of becoming an artist, what an artist looks like. Um, before he's an artist. Yeah, good. Yeah, Abby. Yes. So if you see, have you ever seen, yes, you have is the answer, a painting simply called A Portrait of the Artist? There are many of them. What do they mean? What's another name for self-portrait? Yeah, so sometimes they're called self-portraits. Um, but the more technical art historical name is A Portrait of the Artist. So there are lots of them, a portrait of the artist. And it's just, that's a very common title. And strangely enough, it's almost never the same artist. It's like when Whistler does a portrait of the artist, it's a different person there than when Rembrandt does. How does that work? Um, sorry? Oversold. Oversold, that, yeah. Well, in a sense, yes, but we won't go down that road um, to that bare common. Um, so a portrait of the artist basically is a way of saying self-portrait. Um, now, you've probably also seen, especially if you've seen Rembrandt paintings, titles which begin a portrait of the artist and then continue a portrait of the artist as or in. Can you think of any? That might be David Hockney, um, although I don't think he actually did that because... What? A dog. A portrait of the artist is a dog. Okay. Yeah, Joy? Well, I mean, there's a portrait of the artist in his studio, which is Kirshner's. Okay, a portrait of the artist in his studio. Good. Um, you'll also get things like a portrait of the artist in gypsy garb, or a portrait of the artist as a Swiss guard. That is to say that frequently what artists will do is make them take themselves as models, and they will alert you to the fact that they are the model of the painting that they're doing. But they'll also tell you that, no, this isn't the way I walk around Amsterdam every day. Um, it's a special I, occasion. Yeah. So a portrait of the artist in <laughs> drag. A port, I mean, that's the kind of thing Cindy, do people know Cindy Sherman? Um, so basically, Cindy Sherman's self-portraits, they're all portraits of the artists as various kinds of different people. Yeah. Douglas would look like if it were the same kind of portrait as in Dorian Gray. <laughs> like a child? Like a child. Okay, yeah. 
Well, no, because the, the portrait becomes corrupt. All right, so, yeah, it would look like Leopold Bloom. Corruption and then redemption. So what, does it go it from a child with a prostitute standing behind him in the shadow? The, the easy answer to that actually is Leopold Bloom. <laughs> that is easy answer. Because it's corrupt. Like corrupt doubt. Okay, so... So think then that what Joyce is doing is actually, that title is very, very sly and worth thinking about the slyness of it. What he's doing is basically saying there's a kind of genre of painting where the artist takes himself or herself as model. You know, Frida Kahlo did this all the time too. Takes himself or herself as model. But like any other model that a painter uses, or a photographer for that matter, um, like any other model, um, that model will be put in interesting situations. That is, it's very, very rare that you will simply do a portrait of your model in your studio. That's what's interesting about that title, a portrait of the artist in his studio, or a part portrait, um, although Manet did it, and Matisse did it, a portrait of the artist, or a portrait of a model in a studio. Um, generally, what you do is you take a model and put the model in some interesting um, situation that a painting is trying to depict. So that the Mona Lisa is depicted not in Leonardo's studio, but against a background um, with a window behind her, and so forth. The Last Supper doesn't take place in Leonardo's studio. It takes place in, um, um, the, the, in Israel, um, in Jerusalem. In all these cases, what you do is you take real models, and you can follow, some of you probably know that if you look at Van Gogh paintings or Cezanne paintings, um, you can find the same models, um, the same men, generally, the same faces, in painting after painting after painting, being different people in those paintings. So this is a standard thing for painters to do, is to take their models, models that sometimes they painted over and over again, that they've hired, that are in their employ, and paint them in different situations. Now you do a self-portrait or portrait of the artist, you take yourself as model, and you put yourself in different situations. Um, people know about the robbery at the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum 25 years, 20 years ago, I guess it was. Um, one of the many sad facts about that robbery is that it contained Rembrandt's only seascape. Do people know about this? Um, Rembrandt only painted one seascape in his career. And this is called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And um, so it's the storm that's talked about. See how everything comes around? Talked about in the Gospel of John. Um, where there's a storm and then Jesus calms the water, but before he calms the water, there's this terrible storm. And this boat is pitching and heaving on waves, and the disciples are on this ship in the midst of this storm. And right in the middle of the painting, one of the very small figures in the painting, one of the disciples, looking straight out at the viewer, the only one looking at you, which is very rare in a painting if it's not a portrait, for someone to look at you, the only one looking at you, right in the middle of the painting, is a self-portrait of Rembrandt. So there is a portrait. Yeah. So there's a portrait of Rembrandt as a passenger on the ship in a storm in the Sea of Galilee. Um, do people know about the Sistine Chapel? So Michelangelo paints himself in the Sistine Chapel in the weirdest imaginable way. No, 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 no. It's much weirder than that. So in the Sistine Chapel, do people know? Yeah, 
Well, there, there are two possible self-portraits. Yeah. One is of him as a devil, but even more interesting is there's St. Bartholomew. And St. Bartholomew was a martyr. And do people know what happened to him? He was flayed alive. That is, his skin was taken off him. Um, yeah, well, stories of martyrdom. You, I know you'd rather read about how long hell is. but um, And in The Last Judgment, he appears in The Last Judgment holding his own skin. So there he is, flayed and skinless, holding his own skin like a garment. And the skin is just kind of drooping right on the surface of the picture plane. He's looking up towards Christ. There's a whole diagonal of Christ to angels, God, Christ, saints, all the way down to Satan at the, at the very bottom. And he's there near the foot of Christ, looking upwards, holding his own skin. And if you look at his skin, what you see is at first looks like a drooping garment made of human flesh. But then you see a face in it. And that face is Michelangelo's. <laughs> and the, the underarm sockets are his eyes. Um, so it's, yeah, it's plenty bizarre and plenty weird. But so that's a portrait of Michelangelo as the flayed skin of St. Bartholomew. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Caravaggio is another good example. And, but he also, and he also used, like, prostitutes as, like, Mary, like the Virgin Mary. He, was, like, he also funny. wanted for murder and sent that picture as, like, turning himself in. Yeah. He also painted himself as one of the soldiers arresting Jesus in um, <laughs> the kiss in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas is, pointing Jesus, is kissing Jesus and pointing him out to the soldiers, and Caravaggio paints himself as one of the soldiers arresting Jesus. So this is all taking yourself as model. It saves money. All you need is a mirror, and the mirror only has to be half your size. Um, and um, you put yourself, if you're a painter, and I'm sure you do this if you're a writer, into certain historical situations and um, use yourself as model. So those could all be a portrait of the artist as a sailor on a ship in the storm of the Sea of Galilee a portrait of the artist as a Roman soldier arresting Jesus, a portrait of, or a portrait of the artist as the flayed skin of St. Bartholomew, a portrait of the artist as Satan, Cindy Sherman, a portrait of the artist as Marilyn Monroe. Um, so a portrait of the artist as a young man, what does that title then mean? The thing to notice is that there are two different meanings of as. Yeah, that he's not a young man. Go on. Say more. Right. Yeah. In that way, um, Stephen Douglas could be, you know, being depicted as a young man, but he never was young in whatever sense of the word that you choose to take it, whether it be like temporal or like or, I don't think you want to say Stephen Dedalus, though. I think you want to say James Joyce. In other words, Stephen Dedalus would be like Roman soldier. And James Joyce would be like Caravaggio. Abby. Yeah, so what he's saying is, one thing he's saying very clearly, I think, by that title. He's equivocating on the word as. Um, so we do say things like, um, do you all know who Jethro Tull is? Of course not. 
You do? How? Jethro Tull? Seriously? All right. Do you know um, Parenthetical Girls? Yeah. All right, good. I'm impressed. Um, parenthetical Girls? No, no, no. It's really bad? So bad. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's a good song. She has said it, so it must be so. Name other bands you don't think we know. <laughs> um, no. They're, they're, they're shooting fish in a barrel. Um, television? See? Only one of the greatest bands of the 1980s, but oh well. Television? Yeah, Tommy Verlaine. Lydia Lunch. See? I think you made that up. Television? <laughs> what? Yes! Okay. Um, two ways you can talk about, we won't follow the Jethro Tull lead. Two ways you can use as. As a young man, I used to believe blah, blah, blah. But now, or if you think of Virginia Woolf's Orlando, um, the first picture in Orlando. Do people know about Orlando? Well, there's, there are photographs in it, and um, the first photograph, they're all faked photographs. The first photograph in this novel, Orlando, is Orlando. It's actually something that's, that's very enticing if you're just paging through it and wondering whether to read it. There's a photograph, and the first one is Orlando as a young boy. And then um, I think the last photograph in the book is Orlando as she is today. And what you should say is, Wait, what? Um, and then read it. Um, so as a young man, I used to believe. As a young man, I did this and so on. But the as in a portrait of the artist as a young man is I am taking myself as a model and depicting myself as though I were young. So he's immediately telling you in that title, this isn't a record of my youth. <laughs> This is an invented scene in which I take my current self and dress myself up as a baby and as a young man and as a child and as a would-be priest and so on. So it's the adult James Joyce doing a portrait of his adult self in the garb of various older ages. Okay, we'll talk more about this. Um, and Game Theory and Pascal and Descartes you should read all six meditations they're not that long but give yourself a couple of days to do it before Monday sorry? yeah no no we'll, we'll do it all on Monday it's, it's, all, it's all good I don't understand it it's bothering me Prisoner's Dilemma? okay we'll, do, we'll definitely we actually started talking about it today